Today's message comes from Pastor Josh Brady. He's covering Micah chapter 6 as we continue our series in the book of Micah. This chapter contains what is likely the most recognizable passage in the book, and maybe one of the most often quoted passages in all of Scripture, Micah 6, 8. Nonetheless, Josh is bringing fresh perspective as he teaches today. We pray you'll be challenged and encouraged. Micah 6 is our passage for today. Uh, Ariator family, thank you so much for that reading and that prayer. God bless. Uh, I am so thankful that we get to journey in God's Word together today. Again, if you are new with us this week and you say, hey, I don't even, I didn't even know Michael was in the Bible. Use the table of contents. Never be embarrassed about that. It is there for a reason. Uh, go find Micah and get to chapter 6 because I promise you, you are going to want to read every bit of this today. Um, because it is the story of us. This is why we are the way we are. And it is also the picture and the frame that God used to bring grace 700 B.C. in the same frame that he uses to bring grace today in 2022. And so as you are turning there, uh, just a reminder of where we are and how we got to Micah chapter 6. We have covered a lot of ground over these last five weeks together, this being our sixth week. Uh, remember that Micah is written in three cycles, and each of those cycles will have a, a, a first part, an, an introduction part of judgment. Uh, and then after that, there is going to be a salvation part of that cycle. And so we have journeyed through the first two, and today we start cycle number three, and we will be in the, the judgment portion. And so just on the outset, you may say, Josh, that doesn't sound very encouraging. Hear me out. You're going to have to show back up next week if you want the encouragement, okay? This week is the judgment portion of this text, but I promise you it is indeed good. And I don't know about you, but I have personally enjoyed journeying through Micah over these, these past six weeks, including today. But it's caused a lot of angst in my heart. And here, here are a couple of reasons it has. There's angst over trying to better understand Israel's history, Judah's history, so I can better understand my own heart's desires. Like, why am I the way that I am? Why do I desire the things that God says, hey, don't desire that. I've already told you what you should desire. How come I desire the stuff he doesn't want me to be a part of? And how come the stuff he tells me to be a part of, I find myself not gravitating towards? I think the Apostle Paul wrote towards some of that in some of his letters. Another area that has caused angst in my heart is trying to make sure that I am learning from their mistakes, their missteps. So, so we don't, and by God's grace, repeat the sins of, of God's people's past. And this is probably the biggest one for me, the angst that it's caused, is the Holy Spirit, Spirit revealing my own sins that have been waging war against me and continuing to cause disfellowship with the Father. Now, we understand we are on the, the other side of redemption, the other side of the cross, where they had no cross in view. It would be 700 years before Jesus would come, as we are looking at it today. We're on the other side of that, so we have grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Correct. But I still don't want to sin just because I'm forgiven. It's not a license for us to go and do what we want to do just because we think God is going to, to wipe it all away so we get free access to do whatever and whenever and however we would like. Now, all of that, and then some, has caused great angst in me and maybe in you. But 
As much angst has been applied to my heart, peace has been applied all the more. Here are a couple of things that personally I've enjoyed walking through this book of Micah, okay? Number one, seeing that God's love is covenantal. And we're going to talk about that in a second, but God's love is covenantal, meaning it is based on a promise and not on a feeling. Knowing that his covenantal love, that, that in it towards us, is full of mercy, and it's abounding in steadfast love. And this is probably my favorite thing of journeying through Micah so far. It's peace that has been applied to my heart, seeing God's word and God's will unfold over a longer period of time. Here, here's what I mean by that. A biblical generation is roughly 35 to 40 years. Micah has been preaching in this moment where we get today for 50 years, 5-0. So it is over a generation that Micah has been standing and delivering this, this word. It would be the same for Isaiah as well, okay? So you have these two prophets, similar time, similar space, and they are preaching over the long period of time. Guys, where we live in the age in which we live, we assume that the preaching happens on a Sunday morning and the invitation happens right before you go to the Mexican restaurant and then all is well with God's people. That's not what we see in Scripture. We see these prophets prophesying and preaching for extended periods of time, hear me out, with little to no change. And then all of a sudden, there is this great move of God, whether it is convictional or it's God just moving in a mighty and powerful way that changes things for his people. Part of this is some of the change is good. It is great for them. They find peace and reprieve. But sometimes the change is hard. Sometimes the change is tough for them to take in. But the reason that this has been good for me is that God's promises is seen across generations and not just in the immediate moment. Sometimes we can start to feel some kind of way, whether that is excited or disenfranchised with God, because we believe that his action or his inaction, because he didn't answer our prayer today. We've asked him to heal and he didn't heal today. We've asked him to deliver and he didn't deliver today. We've asked him to provide and he didn't provide today. So God, you must be not real. Well, we look at the history of him. And we see he is not bound by our time frame. We see him being faithful over generations, which this could be good news or bad news. I don't know how it's going to hit you, so get ready. What this tells us is this life is not about us, but about him. Now, again, I don't know how that's going to hit you because if we find ourselves in a more self-centered, self-centric way, we're going to not like how that comes across. But if there is an opportunity for you to step back and to see that everything that God is doing, not just in your life, but the lives that are around you, that God is, is weaving a beautiful tapestry that will tell the story, not just of your blip on the timeline of eternity, but on his sovereign hand from start to finish. That's the beauty of what books like this teach us, that teach over a longer, extended period of time. Journeying through books like this give us peace because we can see and have a better and healthier understanding of God's goodness and faithfulness, all right? That being true, this also helps me to remember that I can trust him even when life now doesn't make sense. 
Same for them. They are being oppressed by the Assyrians. They think they're about to be taken over. Remember Sennacherib, that guy? And we, we already talked about we know what happens to him. In this moment, they don't know that he is going to be defeated. They don't know that they're going to wake up to, in the next days and they're going to see 185,000 of the enemy army dying at night. They're not, they don't know that yet. They're just trusting that God hears them and that God loves them. And we get a chance to, to, to get above and see the longer picture of what's going on. Okay, so, so even if that's true, this understanding shouldn't make us sad or mad, but it should allow us to understand that we are being held by the Ancient of Days. There's great comfort in that freedom and in that truth. So even in rebuke today, chapter 6, even in correction today, chapter 6, we can know that we are fully known and we are still fully loved. Now with that picture, let's jump into today's text. Micah, chapter 6, starting in verse 1, hear what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you, enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. All right, so the section begins much like chapter 1 does. If you, if you were with us from the beginning, you say, that sounds familiar. It sounds a lot like chapter 1. But the language here is a little bit, it's nuanced, but it's different, and it's really important. Okay, so, so let's dive in that just a little bit, okay? Micah says, arise and plead your case before, and he uses a, a physical attribute of the earth. Arise and plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. You enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. This wording of mountains and hills, of heaven and earth, okay? For them, it would be a direct correlation to something that has been, or at least should have been, passed down over generations, it would remind them of the covenant that God made with their ancestors. Why is this important? Because in the covenant, there was strong language that after God promised to be their God and he would be their God and they would be his people, the, 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 the strong language was, make sure you pass this down. Because if they forget it, it is going to be bad for them. So as, as, important, as, as important as this day is today, the reminder of this day is equally important. Keep your Bible in Micah 6. Quickly go to Deuteronomy 30. You say, where's Deuteronomy? The last book of the Pentateuch. The, la the first five books of the Bible is the fifth one. All right, so, so here we go. go. Go Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 and following. While you're turning there, I want you to, I want you to understand where we are. Moses is standing before the people right before he gives leadership of Israel over to Joshua and right before Moses dies. They are getting ready to go into the promised land, okay? This would be the land that Micah and Judah are finding themselves in in 700 B.C., okay? Where is this timeline taking place? 1300 B.C., Okay, so, so 1300 B.C., you have Moses standing before the people as an intercessor between them and God, and he is delivering to them the covenant renewed. And here's what he says. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 and following. See, 
I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you this day by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his will and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and if you will not hear, but you are drawn away, listen, to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you should surely perish. You shall not live long in that land that you were going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Listen to verse 19, church. And I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. That's the language. So in this covenant renewal, God invokes creation because it's been there before them and it will be there after them. It's a pretty rock steady event. And he calls them and he says, look, I want to, to make this known to everyone here. Heaven, earth, I want you to hear what I'm telling. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. All right, that's important to know because when Micah 6 starts to unfold and it's that courtroom setting, he is invoking language that should... If, if this has been passed down, it should remind them, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we made that promise. Uh-oh, uh-oh, if we made that promise, then there's either life or there's death. And the promise was this, as long as we love God, as long as we don't forget God, as long as we are with God, then we are going to be blessed. We will have things that we didn't work for. We're going to enjoy the land that he has trusted to us, but if we forget him, and we start to serve other gods, we won't be in that land for long. He will come and he will wipe them away. God is reminding his people of the covenantal promise that he made to them and that they agreed upon. God has great issue with how they, Israel, have been living. And so now he's calling the heavens and the earth, the mountains and the hills to give witness to the promise that everyone has agreed upon. And you may be thinking, wasn't that a long time ago? Yeah, roughly 500 years prior to this moment is when that covenant was renewed. This is why the Shema is so important. If you have done parent-child dedication at this church sometime in the last two years, would you raise your hands? If you have been a part of the parent-child dedication of this church, maybe you were a grandparent, maybe you were an aunt and uncle, would you show that by raising your hands this morning? Okay, there's a lot of people here, okay? And I'm not saying it is, it is what I'm about to say is going to be exclusive to that event, but I know that as I have had the honor to lead in part of that service, I have used this verse I'm about to show you for a very particular reason. So you're still in Deuteronomy, okay? I want you to now go to Deuteronomy 6. A lot of setup today, okay? And we got to go real fast. This is why the Shema is important. Parents teaching the kids the truth of God in a way that they can pass it down generation to generation. 
Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. When you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For it is the Lord your God whom you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name alone shall you swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy you off the face of the earth. That sounds intense. Surely there were people on that day who thought, God, you are good, but surely it can't get to that point. Go back to Micah 6. We're at that point. This is where we are in the history of Israel. They knew the promise, but they did not pass it down generationally. If they did, it was not with sincerity. More than likely, there was a belief that started to unfold that God is only good and he is not full of justice. So that caused them to begin to live however they saw fit. All right. As important as family discipleship was in 1300 BC and in 700 BC, it is as important, if not more important, today. Parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles. If we are relying solely on this church hour and the life group hour that follows or preceded it to give our family all that we need to be obedient to God's will and God's word, hear me out, we are going to be woefully disappointed. This can't be all there is to your Christian life. I am thankful for this moment. I am thankful for our life groups. But hear me, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, this truth must be reinforced and lived out with authenticity at home. Look, I know you believe this, and I know a lot of time life gets in the way, but let this be a tale of caution for us. Here's what happens. Go back to Micah 6, look at verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? This is God. This is God speaking to them. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And what happened to Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. All right, so all of that to say this. God wants his people to remember all the ways that he has been faithful to them, specifically how he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. Although that is very far removed from where they are today, they need to remember that it was true and it happened. We need to remember that it's true and that it happened. Rescuing them from slavery, sending Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, protecting them and blessing them with Balak, 
The king of Moab, not a really nice guy, wanted to trap and kill them. Not going to go into this for the sake of time today, but I really want you to read this account. Numbers 22 through Numbers 24. Write that down and go, go read it. If you've never read this, this is unbelievable. There's this king of Moab who wants the people of God eradicated, so he hires a diviner. The diviner's name is Balaam. And what he's trying to do is to get this diviner to come and cast a curse on God's people that they may be destroyed, and so he's up for hire. And so Balaam, the diviner, goes to sleep one night. God comes to him into a vision and says, you can't curse my people because I've already called them blessed. Let that sink in. The enemy cannot curse what God has already called blessed. Don't miss who we are and whose we are. If we forget it, we can become so pitiful in our minds. Oh, woe is me. Nobody likes me. Life's so hard. God has called his people blessed. And so as we see this unfold, go back and read the story for yourself. There's this moment where, where Balaam doesn't necessarily listen to the vision in the beginning, and he thinks he's still going to go curse the people of God for a, a hired wage, and all of a sudden his donkey starts to talk to him. So there's a, tonkin, a talking donkey. It's not Shrek. It is indeed a part of real life. And if that's not enough, the donkey has decided he's not going anywhere. He turns around and says, why are you hitting me? You don't see the angel standing there with the flaming sword getting ready to kill both of us? Like, is that in the Bible? Numbers 22 to the Numbers 24. Go back and read it. God has been faithful. God is faithful. And God will always be faithful. That is the premise of that passage. Here's the people's response to that. Verse 6. With what shall we come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? All right, so listen. The people have come before God with a really poor and false worship posture. They have a really gross misunderstanding of who God is and what God desires from them. They came before God bowing themselves, so, so they're doing the worship things, yet there is no brokenness over their sin. They're just trying to sort out how to pay for their bad behavior. Their thought is, we can buy God's forgiveness or do enough good things to make him not angry anymore. Notice how their conversation with God escalates. Burn offerings, calves a year old, so, so that, that's ramping up. Thousands of rams, thousands of rivers of oil. Then they go here. Give my firstborn for my transgressions. See, the core of their understanding of how God works is, God, do you, do you desire the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? All right, so I've messed up. Now I've got to give you something to make it better. For them, the more they had caused them to think the more they could get away with because they thought they could pay God off. Church, this is the posture of so many people in our day that do not understand the love that God has towards them. God's heart is not to take from the people that he loves. 
Yet too many times we think that's what God desires. We've messed up. Oh, no, God's going to take something I love. Last week, he's going to take my chariots. He's going to take my buildings. Oh, no, I've messed up again. I guess I got to give up everything that I love. No, God's not in the taking business. He's in the giving business. He wants to give you what will give life, and he wants to take from you what is killing you. But sometimes in our sinful heart, we get those things twisted, and we start to love the things that are killing us and hate the things that give life. And so here, they had a bad misunderstanding. God wants to give his people the greatest gift possible. That is himself. A real, vibrant, life-giving relationship with himself. God offers to his people the opportunity to walk with him and him walk with us. Oh, what a wonderful thought. Here's Micah's response, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Notice the personal possessive language. That even in the rebuke earlier, he identifies the people as my people. And now, even in his wrath being poured out upon them, he calls himself their God. Even in God's judgment and wrath, he loves. But there are three things that God has required of them to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with him. So three things, and quickly we're going to walk through them. What is this idea of justice? It is when a group or a people or a person are in a position of power and authority over someone else. They are to care for those in their watch care and not exhort them, extort them for personal gain. So in this case, leaders and prophets for hire was injustice. The leaders and the prophets that God has placed over them, they placed over them to love them. They should not have required a sum of payment to make sure they were going to get a blessing and not a curse. But they did. And it was a grave injustice from the leadership of the people all the way down. The second thing I want you to see is mercy. This is a a unique word here because it's not like mercy in the sense of um, Mercy is this idea, if we, if we use just kind of a general definition, of not giving somebody something that they deserve. Okay, so grace is giving, giving somebody something. Mercy is not giving them something that they do deserve. So somebody messed up. Mercy would be, I'm not going to exact vengeance on you. That's mercy. That's not necessarily what we're speaking to with this word. Okay, hased is the word here. Here's why that's important, because the the word here is a faithful, covenantal love towards others. Love that's based on a promise and not on feelings towards what they deserve. All right, let that sink in for God's people. This is a love that is based upon a promise not feelings towards somebody for what they have done or not done to you. This is radically different than what the world says is love and mercy. This is based on the promise of the Imago Dei, 
the image of God. Every human has dignity because of the creator in whom the image that they bear. And then finally, the end of verse 8, don't miss this. They are to walk humbly with their God. Now, too often we think of this word humbly as kind of a sad, just kind of, kind of unassuming. We're just kind of, do you guys remember Winnie the Pooh? You remember Eeyore? Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. We feel like that is some version of humility. That's not what this is talking about. Matter of fact, I think the word, and I, and I know, I hate when, when other people do this, and here I am about to do it. I would say, well, another word would be good here. Another word that would work really well here to, to understand this idea better is carefully. So instead of thinking this idea of just walking with God, it is, I'm going to walk carefully with God. I'm going to make sure that I'm doing exactly what he told me, how he told me, and when he told me to do it. Because he is the authority and I am not. And so this word and this understanding is to walk carefully and not arrogantly. To walk with God as if he is our God and we are his people, not the other way around. Because too often, church, we view ourselves in the place of authority in our own life, and we ask God to come alongside us to sprinkle some blessing along the way. And we have the scars to prove why that was a bad decision. So they don't know what to do. They're trying to sort it out. God, through Micah, tells them, I've already told you what I desire of you. It is to do justice. It is to, to love kindness, mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. All of these, done rightly, gets us to Matthew 22. Jesus has asked, what's the greatest commandment? Or what's the greatest commandment? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But the second is just as important. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. When you do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God, guess what? You love God and you love people. Everything else is taken care of if we do that. That's why Micah 6, 8 has been so important over history of Christianity. Here's the point I believe that God, through Micah, is driving home. Because this would, this would apply to their injustice, their inability to love kindness, and they're definitely walking arrogantly with God. You cannot love God if you treat people poorly. Hear it again. You cannot love him if you treat his people poorly. Which people? All people. But what if the people did, uh-uh, image of God, steadfast love and mercy, not based upon what they did or did not do, but because of whose image they bear. You cannot say you love him if you hate your brother. But the other is true as well. Hear me out. And I think this is going to give, I hope, a lot of light for our relationships. We are badly out of time. Worship team's going to come up, and I still got a half a sermon to preach. It's going to be great. <clears throat> Don't miss this. You can't truly love people unless you love God first. That is so deep, Marcus. Because that doesn't just 
work out in how you handle your one hour in church on Sunday. That handles how your marriage unfolds. That, 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 is, that is encompassed in how you are going to raise your children. How you handle relationship and conflict. Hear me out. You can't love somebody like you were designed to unless the love of God is in you first. So you may be sitting here today and you're religious, but you have no relationship with God. There is no walk with him carefully. It's all arrogant, and you wonder, why is my marriage a mess? Why is my relationship with my kids a disaster? Why am I always angry at people? I would start with, who is controlling your heart right now? You can't say you love God if you don't love people, but you can't love people if the love of God does not consume you. And that's where we find ourselves today. And you say, well, Josh, what about all the remaining verses? Right. Remember, we get the glimpse of this thing after it's happened and throughout the time and space of history. Even though they knew this, sadly, they still chose not to live it out. I'd love to tell you that in the next verse, in verse 9, they were like, oh, we repent of all of our sin. Let us, let us do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with thee. That's my, my King James coming out of me. That's not what happens. Let me quickly read it just for the sake of us having read it. The voice of the Lord cries out to the city and is the sound wisdom, it is, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of the wicked in the house of the wicked? The scant measures that is accursed? Shall I quit the man with wicked scales, with a bag of deceitful weights? This is, this is the poor leadership as they were trying to fleece the people. Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. Their tongues are deceitful in their mouths. There was no truth in them. Therefore, this is God's response. This is what's going to happen. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow. Please notice who did the striking. It is entirely possible in the realm of God's goodness for him to allow calamity to befall you if it is going to break you from that sin and draw you back to himself. Do not miss this truth today. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate. Why? Why would God do such a thing? Because of your what? Sin. Don't miss that word. It is as important today as it has ever been. Remember the original covenant, the promise? You're going to go into this land. You're going to eat things and be full of trees and plants you didn't, you didn't harvest. You're going to live in buildings that you didn't, you didn't build. You're going to have cisterns you didn't dig. You're going to drink the wine of, of grapes you didn't plant. Here's the grievous blow. You shall eat and not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink the wine. For you have, you have kept the statutes of Amari and the works of the house of Ahab. 
You have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing so that you shall bear the scorn of my people. Amari and Ahab were terrible kings. Their ways were terrible. Of all the kings and statutes Israel could have kept, they chose Amari and Ahab. And you think, Ahab, Ahab, where do I know that name? You remember he had that super awesome wife? She was super encouraging. You remember her? Jezebel? That's her. She's the one who led God's people to go and worship Baal. They walked in their counsel. Here, wildly. When thinking of the best way to approach something, they said, hmm, I wonder what Amari and Arab and Jezebel would do here. The reason for God's action towards his people is because they were acting like not his people. And they were acting like he wasn't their God. And because of this lived out belief, they would bear the scorn of his people. They would be treated as if they were his enemy because they forgot who they were, and more importantly, they forgot whose they were. Remember this today, church. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that your father swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob to give to you the great and good cities that you did not build and the the houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns you did not dig and the vineyards of olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and you are full, then please take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God shall you fear. Him alone shall you serve and his name shall you swear by. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Least the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the earth. The warning, do not forget God. What did they do? They forgot God. And you may sit here today and say, Josh, I do not like what that sounded like today. That was not a very good and encouraging sermon. That was not Caleb approved. How do we, who live in a land of good, war against forgetting the God who gave us everything? Because he is jealous in 700 BC, he was jealous in 1300 BC, and he's still jealous in 2022. That jealousy is a good jealousy. What he means by that is he wants our worship, and he doesn't want us to give our worship to anyone or anything else, especially us. How do we fight against that? He has told you, O oh man, what is good to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with him. That is the call on our life. Church, I am inviting you into this beautiful relationship with God, but please hear me out. It is a call to come, to run, to throw yourself down at his mercy, and he is gracious and good to love, to redeem and restore, but he's promised a life, a life of good, not of harm but it's a life that we must walk, not arrogantly, not like we know, but we must walk carefully. We must walk humbly according to his will and his word. 
This has been a production of Broadmoor Baptist Church. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with others and don't forget to subscribe. To help us spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe as well. They can find us wherever they prefer to get their podcasts. And if you'd like more information about Broadmoor, please visit our website at broadmoor.org or connect with us on your favorite social media platform where we're listed as at my Broadmoor. Thanks for listening.